You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Hello, podcast listeners. Alex Rosenberg here, here with the final episode of the Real Vision Classics series. This is where we've been letting you listen to the full audio version of interviews that previously appeared on Real Vision. So this is this is a treat. This is one of my, uh, you know, one of the most interesting conversations I've ever uh, had the chance to listen in on. Mike Green is from Teal Macro. He's a macro investor and, and really just a deep thinker about the world. And he interviews another deep thinker about the world who has a completely different practice. Instead of going macro, he goes micro. Instead of look, you know, looking at global markets, he looks at individual companies. That man's name is Josh Wolf from venture capital firm Lux Capital. So what makes this conversation so great, in my opinion, is that it's two men who you know, have their very developed ideas about the future and also about about history because you need to understand the past to understand the future. And they express their views in different ways, one with macro, one with um, micro, if you will, very micro, venture capital, not even publicly listed. So I and, – and they – you know, their discussion of what the future will bring is, I, I think, just so mind-blowing and cool but also – Probably, you know, very thought-provoking for for investors of any kind. So this was filmed in June of 2018, and uh, it, it's going to be a long conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I also have to tell you one other thing, which is very exciting. I think on Wednesday of this week, uh, Real Vision started releasing a lot, about 20% of its content for free to the public. So. Every day, there's new videos uh, that anyone can watch if they just go to realvision.com. That includes the trade ideas, uh, a daily show where every day there's a new trader with a new trade idea. That includes some of our recent 30 and 60-minute pieces. That includes some pieces from the archive, like this piece. It includes our weekly shows like The Knock-On Effect, which comes out on Thursdays, uh, coming back in late February. And like The One Thing featuring AK, which is a sort of fun summary of of what's been going on in the world of finance. So listen, there's a lot for you to check out. I'd really encourage you to go to realvision.com. And hey, you know what? Uh, Keep coming back. Check it out on a Friday. Come back on a Tuesday. Check it out on Thursday. I really think that if you've enjoyed these classic uh, interviews, if you've enjoyed uh, Knock on Effect, if you've enjoyed Adventures in Finance, you're going to find something you're really going to love. The flip side of that is the hat. You know, now that we're kind of using video to give people a glimpse into what we're doing at Real Vision, there's not so much a need for us to do that in an audio version. And we are not going to be releasing new episodes of a Real Vision podcast anytime soon. So don't expect it to come back next week. Uh, you might have to change your, your Thursday night plans if they revolve around listening to my voice, which is, is doubtful. But um but I would encourage you to, to, if you want more Real Vision, there's actually a lot more for you to check out every week, every day at realvision.com. 
All right, now that that's all out of the way, uh, please enjoy this fascinating, uh, very long, in-depth interview between Michael Green and Josh Wolf. Josh, it's been almost 18 months since we sat down. Feels last. like it was yesterday. It really does. Um, you were absolutely one of the best interviews that we ever had on Real Vision. People were just incredibly excited to hear you talk about basically anything. I want to push you on a couple of the topics. Um, one, you've said for the longest time that matter matters. That was one of the primary philosophies that you had at Lux. Um, and, and explain what that means just quickly. Well, one part of it is uh, science, and one part of it is a little bit of sanctimonious righteousness, but matter that matters, meaning we were investing in things that were basically derived from breakthroughs in physics and chemistry and material science, thinking about the atoms when you had a world that was dominated by investor interest and flow of capital and talent into things that were bits, the zeros and ones of our digital economy, the internet, optical networking. And the sanctimonious part of this and the righteous part was we always said that we you know, were funding stuff that really had impact and it wasn't angry birds and virtual pigs. And we can debate whether that in some way has some merit for society, but funding something like nuclear waste cleanup and high tech based on physics that can go save a 40 million population by removing all the radioactivity from the Fukushima disaster was to us, you know, as sanctimonious and righteous as it may be, more meaningful. It had more, more matter. Uh, and I think when we're funding entrepreneurs, anytime anybody comes in and says, you know, we want to change the world, I generally think that it's BS. But when they come in and say, like, I want to go do this thing, and it has the byproduct almost accidentally that they did it, it just feels super meaningful for them. So above the money that they're making, it's just a great way to attract the right people. And so this is an area that feels like it is becoming incredibly timely. The physical world. The physical world is, is, is becoming timely. And, and you and I have talked a little bit about this, but part of what seems to be happening is, is that the processing power, the technology is actually now progressing to the point that we've moved from the relatively simple manipulation of the virtual world, right? Um, so, you know, the creation of a world in which anything is possible, a second life, for example, where exactly. you recreate something in low resolution mode. Right, that from a technology standpoint, that's been possible for an extended period of time. But now we're actually moving to a point where we're starting to see the technology progress to the point that you're manipulating things in the real world. Yeah, so, so let's look at both of those, right? The, the blurring between bits and atoms, again, between the zeros and ones, and then the physical output of those is totally happening in a rapid way. So you can take the physical world around us and say, how are we digitizing that? Well, you're doing 3D scanning. It used to be that 3D scanners required very sophisticated lasers. And then it turned out that there was a byproduct of video games, and I'm sure we'll talk about this phenomenon, but lots of interesting things happen from you know, these adjacent possibilities. And if you had a Microsoft Connect and you were playing Xbox, or your kids were, or uh, that was a depth uh, sensor. And that 3D depth sensing camera suddenly was able to do rooms and it got repurposed and it got cheap and so it became available and it was the sort of combinatorial fodder for new entrepreneurs to take this and come up with new businesses. So we can rapidly scan you know, the inner spaces of physical spaces and digitize them. And so 3D scanning you know, is a really important technology. But the flip side of it, which was 3D printing, now that you've got a simulacrum of the physical world in a digital file, a CAD file, computer automated design, you had the rise of firms like Adobe and Autodesk, who are basically selling subscription services to creatives who can design things in the digital world, in bit space. But now we go back to atoms, or what we might call meat space. Now you can take that CAD model and actually physically print it, 
and it comes out of a printer. Now, the printers that we used to have in the 3D printing world were pretty crappy. They printed uh, white, strong, and flexible, which was basically nylon 2200. It was a, a resin. It was plastic. And now we have ceramics and metals and hybrid materials in a really sophisticated way that are no longer just the trinkets that you might see in somebody's office, but now you can actually do large-scale industrial printing. And so the idea of going from digital to physical and from physical to digital is increasingly becoming totally seamless. So this is actually one of the things that crosses over to my world from a macro standpoint, because I look at a lot of the trade dispute discussions with China, and I think there's very much a perception, although people are starting to talk about this, uh, that China's hand might be actually quite weak in this, right? So they've done a phenomenal job of specializing in the use of relatively cheap human capital to yes. build stuff, right? Whether it's plastic trinkets, et cetera. Um, my, my favorite statistic that I've recently uncovered in China is, is what would you guess the single most, uh, that's China's single largest share of U.S. and global exports in any one item is? I would think toys. Uh, it's close. It's umbrellas. Okay. Umbrellas. 85% of the world's umbrellas and 95% of the U.S. imports of umbrellas. Which is brilliant, by the way, because my kids, they never lose their toys. I'm always losing my umbrellas. So. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's very easily... You know, replacement it's, it's, value. It, the replacement value is high. Although it's now dropped to the point that it's absurd. We can get quality umbrellas for very, very low prices, right? But a lot of that, like, we're, nobody is attempting to 3D print an umbrella yet, right? right. For fairly obvious reasons. It's got complex machinery to it. You know, it's relatively simple in, in terms of context, but a lot of, lot of moving parts relative to a bunch of other stuff. But if we have to replace all the umbrellas we import with 3D printed variants, it seems like that's not going to be all that hard. It, it's not. So, um, you know, think about the, it this way. Um, injection molding is basically the technology where you're going to make... Um, uh, a master. And to spend the money to make the master, you have to know that you're going to have a volume that you're going to print of whatever good it is. The base for an umbrella, um, you know, some toy, some plastic, you know, widget, whatever it is. And typically that's on the order of about 100,000 units. And so if you only know that you're going to print 1,000 of something or 500 of something or 10,000 of something, it just it doesn't make sense. Uh, you need to have sort of large-scale volume to be able to produce from a master. With 3D printing, if you're now just sending, instead of a file, which then is the master for uh, uh, injection molding, and then you're having a factory spin this stuff up, and you're using cheap labor to assemble this, out of, 3D, out of sophisticated 3D printers today, you can have fully assembled moving parts that, you know, all the sophistication, the complexity basically goes into the software design at the CAD level instead of human assembly. But now you can print one of something, or 10 of something, or 100 of something, and you totally change the economics of manufacturing. And to your point about global trade flows, this is a really big deal. I mean, over the next decade, you will see billions of dollars, and then I think eventually it will be trillions of dollars. But over the next decade, billions of dollars that would have been caught in a port, or in a container ship, or sitting waiting for tariffs to be paid because this is being imported and exported, and it's just going to be digital files that are crossing the ocean. And instead of shipping into the low-cost labor and industrialized base in China or Laos or Vietnam or Cambodia, you're going to see it shipped to maybe uh, a part of Brooklyn where there happens to be a bunch of very sophisticated industrial 3D printers that are able to print the thousand-batch lot that otherwise never could have been done in China. 
Well, and this crosses over into, you know, what people affectionately refer to Star Trek world, right? You're talking about replicators totally. effectively. Right? I mean, you, you saw in the, you know, in the Enterprise, they would press a button and the morning coffee cup would basically be conjured, right? And so now you're basically pressing a button and your coffee cup can be conjured. You still need the coffee. That's not quite printable yet. But, but yeah, the cups are, I mean, there, there was somebody at one of our company's Shapeways that just as a fanciful thing decided that they were going to pr- produce and print a coffee mug a day. And they got ever more elaborate and sort of evolved into this very complex, almost non-drinkable forms. But you're only limited by your imagination. I mean, as and, and today the technology, and this is actually a really crazy thing, there are tools like something called generative design. This to me is one of the most important areas of technology that I want my kids to understand. You know, in the 80s, I remember my mother, she wanted me to learn golf and Japanese because those were like the language of business and I didn't do either. And today it's Mandarin and coding. And all I know is that in 10 years, it'll be something totally different, right? That parents are prescribing that just won't really matter. Generative design is a not well understood application and technology where I basically say, Mike, I need a hinge for a door and it's got to go from this to this angle. And, um, you know, do you have that in stock? And you're going to say no. Well, now I can actually go to the computer program and it can generate mathematically. It can evolve looking at all the different possibility spaces and looking at the constraints and the weight and the price that I'm willing to pay and the material design and the computer program will basically evolve the part. And then you can print that. So what that means is that we're gonna basically be putting in the problem, the computer is gonna be designing the thing that normally would look like these platonic solids in geometric shape. And uh, the world is gonna start to look more like H.R. Geiger and um, this sort of flowy, uh, architecture as opposed to the rigid structures that we have. And I think that's also going to be profound just in, in design and architecture and building and, and, and product making. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a classic challenge, right? I mean, why are houses built the way they're built? Because right angles are very easy for unskilled laborers to measure. And two right? by fours it's, are easy exactly. to produce and consistent. Yeah, absolutely. And so all those, all, all that begins to change in the world that you think is, is relatively near ahead. And not only near ahead, but I think you're starting to see it in small forms. You know, this hinges as an example. Uh, there's a part for BMW that's being made by one of our companies up in Boston called Desktop Metal, which produces 3D printed metal. Uh, and it looks like it's out of an alien movie. It looks like uh, Gaudi would have designed it. I mean, it's organic, it's flowing, which makes sense, right? I mean, Mother Nature and evolution designed all kinds of complex structures, but they don't look anything like these right-angled, you know, platonic solids. It's Well, and this is, I mean, people forget, right? This is part of the way in which architecture has developed sky rises, which are, you know, skyscrapers, which are all around us are a byproduct of new innovations in metal, right? Yep. They, they, the, the introduction of metal frames uh, and rebar concrete forms and, and rebar, et cetera, right? All of that changed capability, the simultaneous development of elevators made it possible for people to move up and, and change the structure of our cities. And so you're seeing this dynamic of matter matters and this inter- intersection of the digital and physical world now coming together again, like you think this is really about to change. You think this is important. Well, you hit on something important too, because not only can, you know, do the materials matter, but computers matter, right? And the the ability to use computers to search through the possibility space of new materials, combinatorial possibilities in chemistry, that's something that really has only existed in the past decade or so. So the ability to find the next implication, you know, you go back to the graduate, right? I've got... Mm -hmm. One plastics, word for you, plastics, yeah, yeah. right? So, you know, it's, it's going to be all kinds of new polymers and it's going to be composite materials and things that are going to have interesting strength properties combined with interesting thermal properties. And that's going to play a role in semiconductors. I mean, if you take something like indium tin oxide, okay, complex combination of materials, what is it? It's transparent glass that we use 
This didn't exist 20 years ago. All of our phones, all of our iPads, all of our touchscreens, you have clear, transparent, conductive material that you can touch and tap and is basically sending a signal to a computer that you can look through. I mean, you know, that, that would have seemed like magic 30 years ago. And that's only because of innovations in materials. So I think in 10, 20 years, I mean, the, the, the new possibilities that we're gonna derive from new material combinations, much of which are computationally discovered, is gonna be enormous. So how do you think about the process of unseating the incumbent in that, right? Because a skyscraper takes an extraordinary amount of permitting, it takes an extraordinary amount of uh, accumulated wealth to build in the first place. Um, is it a disadvantage for major built cities to face this sort of regeneration? Oh, I think, you know, so different materials are going to have different properties yeah. for different, you know, time frames. There's almost like a, like Stuart Brand's pace layers of how these things are going to change. I mean, buildings, you know, are here for, it's almost like Lindy effect, right? They're here for 30 years. They're going to be here for 30 more years. Um, I think it's going to be in smaller things. It's going to be in like, you know, touch screens where you're going to see the new materials. It's going to be in some new capability, some new toy, some conductive, flexible electronics that you see that you're wearing on your body. Um, I don't think that the threat really in building materials is going to be, you know, the, the big, huge one. I think it's going to be small manufacturing processes, new products that didn't exist before, apparel, textiles, things where a smaller scale can end up having a big impact. So I, I, I agree with that. And it was, it was a little bit of a leading question in part because, um, you, you know, you've often used it and others have used the expression, you know, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed, right? Totally. Um, it feels like consumer electronics have been an area, personal electronics in particular, have been an area that have been disproportionately moving forward, right? But part of that is just the replacement cycle, yep. right? I mean, you know, you very quickly replace a, or historically you very quickly replaced a cell phone yep. right? because the next technology was far better and it was a relatively small fraction of your purchasing power, right? Automobiles have a longer replacement cycle, but are Similarly, you know, seven to 10 years sort of thing. Buildings can be 100 years, right? Um, New York City is one of these areas where, you know, if you, if you would flash back into the 19th century, the population was changing so rapidly that there was always new stuff being built. We've seen this in Asia where population centers have accumulated the, the, the rural uh, residents, right? And so lots of new construction has to happen. So things look really cool and interesting. Right. Assuming they're actually populated. Assuming they're yeah. actually populated. I mean, there certainly are issues with ghost, ghost city dynamics. Um, but that's part of what we're seeing, right? I mean, our cities move very, very slowly, and our personal electronics change very, very rapidly, right? And there's a, there's a feedback loop, though, right? Because ultimately, the personal technology changes enough that you're suddenly forced to confront the infrastructure dynamics. And do you see anything from that standpoint that is that falls into the matter matters type dynamic that where you see a current infrastructure cycle, whether it's transportation would be one that I would, I would put out there. Tra transportation for sure. I mean, you know, you, you made an interesting point about how often we upgrade our, our cars. Now, I, I forget what the average age of it's cars 12 are. years. Okay, so, I mean, that's a, I mean, imagine if you had a TV for 12 years or your phone was 12 years old. I mean, you know, you have no of the current capability, none of the current capabilities, right, to do anything. I do think that you will see potentially two things that are significantly happen on an infrastructure basis with transportation. Autonomous vehicles are real. You know, whoever ends up, I mean, we've got, you know, two horses in the race. One is a full stack, you know, secretive company called Zook that's, yeah. that's out on the West Coast and, you know, started with a few people. And now we've got nearly 500 and they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars and, and they're taking on the big guys. You've got GM that bought Cruise and uh, we were an almost early investor in there and we, we 
we were a little bit chintzy on the valuation and we ended up losing it. And, and uh, you know, that GM that would have been 11 times our money in nine months. SoftBank just spun that out, right? And uh, two, two and a quarter billion dollars in, implying $5 billion valuation. Um, there's going to be four or five other key players in autonomous vehicles, whether retrofitting existing ones or entirely new full stack ones. What's the implication? The implication is ownership of vehicles is going to decline. You're going to be, you know, today I don't, I, uh, we have a car, but I don't use that car. Lauren, my wife, likes to use the car. I, I like to press a button and conjure the car to me, which whether that's Uber or Lyft or a taxi, you know, it comes. You know, I basically use that car on a daily basis, right? And so I'm upgrading whatever car I want, you know, and then you can get to choose, you know, every few days. So I think the cycle when you don't have ownership as a way to differentiate between services that you will see that same competitive dynamic that improves the phone every six months or a year between a Samsung and an Apple and a Huawei and um, Google Pixel, putting in new features, if that upgrade cycle is basically driven by the competitive dynamics and the competitive dynamics in automotive, I think, will be the fact that you're not paying for this big, huge clunker of steel or increasingly silicon every 12 years. And so, um, so that's a dynamic that I can see changing where you start to see increasing competition for the quality of the cars, the in interior experience, and then you know technologically. But the second thing is I do think when you have a sufficient number of autonomous vehicles, you will see cities themselves change. And the idea when you look outside this window and you see parked cars, or let alone double parked cars, white vans delivering inside of a city from 10 a.m. till 4 p.m., I think that's gonna go away. Now, does that happen in a year? Of course not, but over a generation, the idea where cars will be parked on the side of the street will be absurd. They will be in some lot somewhere outside of the city. They will be conjured. They will be perfectly algorithmically defined to be able to, with some excess capacity and slack, to pick people up when they need to go. Deliveries will happen from 10 p.m. at night till 4 a.m. in the morning, and you'll have semi-autonomous systems that are doing that. But I think the entire logistics, transportation, infrastructure is going to change because of autonomy, because it becomes much more of a computation problem than it does today a traffic and steel one. So I... I Completely agree with you. I actually think um, part of the reason, I mean, I have a variety of theories in terms of why wages have not appreciated in the way others might have expected. But one of them for me is certainly this dynamic of humans intuitively understand this, right? So if you're a delivery driver or you're driving a truck, you recognize that every time you raise your price, right, you're bringing the end of your job mm. closer. Interesting. Right? That's um, a great way to put it. And you know, for me, that seems very straightforward. That we're we're kind of moving into this period where the switching costs are going to become very, you know, the switching curves, to be more precise, the S curve adoptions are going to be surprisingly rapid and and change quite quickly. I'll give you a speculation, um, and I put twenty percent chance of this, which is reasonably high. When Amazon announces headquarter two, wherever it is, whatever city, my speculation is that they get a multi-billion-dollar concession to build real-time delivery infrastructure with an autonomous vehicle. And it might be somebody else's that they partner with, it might be their own that they're working on. But if you think about the distribution center that they have here in New York City on 34th Street, and you think if they were to do that in another city where you have some central distribution, all the Amazon now, all the deliveries, and in the same way that we instituted bike lanes, which are basically, you know, depending on the street, left side or right side, you're gonna have a vehicle that just is on the right side making only right-hand turns and algorithmically figuring out how to do the, you know, the grid. 
And I think it will be a game changer for delivery, for real-time commerce, everything from delivering your pharmaceuticals and your prescriptions to your groceries and the thing that you know, you're just itching to get in an hour. Well, it also opens up an interesting question, right? Because when you see that type of capacity increase, right? And that's, there's, there's no question that's what it's going to do is it'll radically increase the carrying capacity of New York City, for example, um, or San Francisco or someplace else, right? Does that then engender yet another wave of people moving into cities, right? And increasing the density of human uh, interaction. Well, you know, and, and so I'm a trustee, as you know, on the Santa Fe Institute, and um, we see the rise of cities, you know, driving economic, you know, a city doubles, and you basically have this nonlinear, the super linear effect of about 1.15 times the economic output. Now, what drives people into city is you know, culture and lots of non-economic things because it's exciting and it's interesting and there's optionality and there's opportunity, um, but also decreasing your your transit, you know, and um, yeah, there are certain constants in transit like Marchetti's constant where, you know, no matter where you live, you're basically commuting about an hour, right? So if you're taking a train, it's an hour. If you're walking, it's an hour. If you're biking, it's an hour. But if there's more infrastructure that allows you to sort of live in and around or near the city, you know, people are going to flock in. And you, you've got a lot of interesting views on the demographics and populations post-World War II and whether people are coming yeah. to suburbia or city. But but my instinct is, and again, I'm a city rat, right? The idea of living in the burbs to me is like torture. But I, I feel like there's an influx into major cities just because there's so much op- opportunity and vibrancy. And that in turn is going to drive more economic dynamism. So I, I, as as you know, I spent most of my life in cities as well. I'm one of the few people who grew up in a, in an urban environment in San Francisco uh, before moving to the East Coast and living in urban environments for an extended period of time. Um, I now live in the suburbs, but they're near suburbs. The horror, the shock, horror, okay. the shock. It's absolutely unbelievable until you sit around my pool and enjoy the uh, the spectacular Northern California weather. But that is that possibility is actually created by a lot of the, inv- the, the investments that were made in the 1940s, 1950s, you know, and, and even earlier, right? The Golden Gate Bridge, which I drive over every day. City infrastructure, the city highways, infrastructure, et cetera, sure. right? So there, there is this interesting trade-off, right? And, and San Francisco, far more so than Manhattan. I mean, Manhattan's an interesting, New York is an interesting place, right? Because if you go back and you look at the population dynamics, the population in New York roughly peaked around 1930. Um, didn't change for actually fell slightly until give or take two, I want to say 1990, 2000. And then has finally like grown by like an additional 500,000 people, right? Uh, maybe a million people. But the economic vibrancy of this. The economic vibrancy of it, it troughed and then rose as well, right? And the economic vibrancy in the 1980s and 1990s reattracted people, right? Um, when I left San Francisco in 1988, Right, the population was give or take 750,000. It's now 800,000. Hmm. Right, so a whopping 50,000 people in a city center can have the crazy price impact that you've seen in a place like New York, in like San Francisco. Um, New York has seen a similar type dynamic, right? But what it does do when you raise those prices, when you attract those additional people, you're correct. I mean, it's a fun- functionally an exponential function when you can find the city center. You can actually map that it's a, a an exponential function that prices fall in an exponential matter, matter as you leave that city and move further and further mm. away, right? But what that does is that raises the value of new construction. And so you get lots of new stuff that's built down here in, in downtown New York, uh, very different than where I lived in the suburbs of New York on the Upper East Side. Exactly. Right? Um, so it does liberate and create that sort of potential, right? We've talked about 
matter. And then the other thing I've seen you tweeting about, and for those who don't uh, who don't follow you, it's at Josh Wolf, right? Yeah, W O L F E. So you're going to get hopefully a whole bunch of new Twitter followers if if anybody is silly enough not to be following you already. But you've been talking about Bitcoin, which to me feels like the the exact opposite, right? It's the it's the virtual world. Well, the the, the dollar itself, right, is a virtual world, and so. It's interesting because I was a hardcore skeptic and cynic about this. And I felt like anything, you have to understand both sides of the argument. So, you know, on one side, this is nothing but tulip bubble and this is an intersubjective belief. It only has value but for the fact that I believe that you believe that he believes that she believes ad infinitum. And, um, and then I started looking at it and it was actually a, a curmudgeonly value investor a guy, Murray Stahl from Horizon Kinetics. I spent time with Murray and, yep. and I was sort of swayed by a few simple arguments. You know, one, if there's 16 million millionaires in the world and each one owned a Bitcoin of which the supply is roughly 16 million, then that basically takes the entire supply and any incremental demand for it would sort of tip it, you know, favorably higher. Well, then the counter to that is, well, what about infinite forking, right? I mean, you can sort of keep forking these things. And the mere fact that this didn't exist 10 years ago and the mere fact that people say, well, it's um, uh, totally immune from sovereign decree, but yet when Korea says that they're going to crack down on it, the price drops. And so I've sort of accepted that this is, at the moment, less about utility and more about a store of value, an alternative store of value, just like we intersubjectively decide that gold in its perceived scarcity or real scarcity is a store of value, that this too, for some period of time, will be a store of value. The idea of its utility, and I'm more skeptical about, and then what everybody says, which I think is totally cliched as well, I'm skeptical about Bitcoin, but blockchain, you know, I'm bullish on. Well, you know, there's been a lot of evidence that says like right now, there's not really anything that's functionally working on blockchain. We have a bunch of investments in companies um, that are working on blockchain. And um, the thing that attracted us to one or more of those was the idea of a decentralized internet that the, and you see this in the backlash over the past few months with some of the tech giants, that you ought to own your own information, that that information should be licensed to some of the big guys, but that your photos and your content and your social graph and all of that should not be siloed inside of Facebook or Google. The sort of classic, either you buy the product or you are the product. And so I see a shift where some of that decentralization will be enabled because of that. All the people, though, that come and pitch us, you know, we're going to use blockchain for healthcare records. We're going to use blockchain for mortgages. We're going to, you know, it's just like an endless supply of people that are proposing that this is the answer to market X. And usually our first question is, well, why couldn't you just use an Excel spreadsheet? Or what's the, you know, is this just an old business that just needs some modern? The main virtue is the idea of sort of triangulating and having proof that if I had some digital currency or some digital contract and I send it to you and I also send it to her, that I haven't simultaneously sent the same contract. And that there's some way to reconcile through a third party, but that third party being the network, that I have in fact only sent it once to you. And so that itself has value, but in the same way that a, a double-edger accounting had value as a protocol or that internet protocol IP had value as a protocol, I think it's very unlikely that people are going to profit from that itself, with the exception of one thing which I think is actually, at first blush, totally crazy, and then as I thought about it, may be really valuable. We're not investors in it, but CryptoKitties. 
this was, you know, ridiculous. This is like Tamagotchi collectibles, you know. Of One of the things is CryptoKitties. Yeah, right. so, I, I mean, I when I first heard about this, I said, this is the most ridiculous thing. But then as I thought about it, I said, this might actually be genius. In part because everybody's underestimating it, but in part because what CryptoKitties is, is this sort of verifiable, almost like the holograms of um, uh, sports memorabilia back in the day that you wanted to ensure that this thing had veracity and fidelity. Uh, I actually think that if you have a digital asset, now that digital asset could be a photograph, it could be a music file, it could be a piece of art, but something that you want to prove its provenance and be able to track it, I think that you're going to have some aspect of crypto involved in that verifying a long hash of where this thing came from, where it has been sent, how it has been used, and that it's not just copied and pasted. And, um, and I actually think that that will end up becoming itself a protocol that becomes somewhat valuable. So I, I think it's interesting you bring that up because... Um, that's also kind of where I see the opportunity set. And somebody used the phrase for me that it, it gives you the opportunity to create scarcity in digital assets, mm -hmm. right? Because digital assets by themselves are obviously quite duplicatable, right? It's, it's very easy to make, make a copy of something. Which itself, by the way, has another facet that I think is quite valuable. And I'm not sure if a single company is going to profit from this or it's going to be a feature from the big ones. And we'll come back to CryptoKitties. But anytime that something is abundant, you want to ask what's scarce. And anytime that something's scarce, you want to say, okay, well, what's abundant? Um, throughout the 90s, the thing that became abundant because of the democratization of the tools of producing content was text, text everywhere. And so articles were published and blogs were published and Twitter and Facebook posts and all this kind of stuff. And the scarce thing became search. So whether, whether it was within Twitter or within Facebook or, of course, Google, that became one of the most valuable things, being able to search through the abundance of content and text. And, of course, that turned also to photos and images and sound files and all of that. Today, with the ability to produce of questionable veracity an enormous amount of content, again, I think the valuable thing is search, but the search is for truth. Is that picture undoctored? Is that video undoctored? And you see some of these techniques. I mean, we talked before about bits and atoms and some of the techniques of like virtual reality and being able to use an off-the-shelf camera that used to cost tens of millions of dollars for a Hollywood you know, special effects rig where I can take your face, map it to Putin or to Trump's, and make you act like a puppet of Trump or Putin where you are controlling the mouth and you can create the audio sound files and you can create a war with that. I mean, you can send markets into turmoil. Uh, and so there's a lot of danger that can happen from that because it's it's so hard to tell if it is real or not, and it's only gonna get better. So th that becomes abundant. The scarce thing is how do you tell the veracity? And that might be in this sort of CryptoKitty-like uh, digital veracity to be able to tell like that file, those frames, those pixels have been doctored. It's a, I mean, you bring up the dynamic of start a war with fake sort of data, right? The wag the dog, totally. uh, Great movie. Dustin, Dustin Hoffman movie. Um, underappreciated, I would say. But uh, I, I had an interesting exchange with Ryan, my oldest son, the other day where I was talking about the importance of being truthful, right? the importance of veracity. And his response to me was, well, Dad, like, look at our world leaders, right? right. Clearly it's not particularly important today. Right. And it, it is an interesting question, right? Can you actually create value from veracity in an environment in which a casual relationship with the truth um, seems to have a relatively high payoff structure? It, it, today it does, right? And, and one hopes for moral reasons that it swings back. But I do think that that line, right? I mean, there, there's two lines that we're talking about. One is earlier in the conversation between atoms and bits between the physical world and the digital. 
And then you have this other world, which is between truth and fiction. And I really feel like it is blurring. I mean, people increasingly, not today. I mean, today you can sort of tell like, okay, that's fake news. There's a fake image that was doctored. Okay, haha, we just got you to tweet out the thing that wasn't really, you know, wasn't really real. But I think in the near future, it is going to be really hard to tell whether something is true or not. And people are going to be confounded by it. Now, there's going to be some virtue in that, right? Because people look at virtual reality and you say, okay, this is just gaming. But there's going to be experiences where you can say like, okay, I am there. I feel like I'm there. The real virtue of news, right? When a, when a journalist is writing something, what they're really saying is, I'm here. You are not. This is true. This is what's happening. New York Times experimented with this, right? They send out Google Cardboard. You put it on. And you're sitting there in a Syrian village watching as refugees are fleeing on your left and your right. I mean, that's an experience that's a hint of what is to come in the coming years that I think will give those, you know, those kinds of experiences. But then there's going to be versions of that that are doctored. And I think our ability to tell whether, and I do not believe we're living in a simulation, but between the real and the simulacrum, it's going to be much more like uh, Westworld. And I love the quote from one of the protagonists early on, one of the, the hosts. He, he looks at her and he says, are you real? And she says, what does it matter if you can't tell the difference? Yeah, it's a, it, it's a very powerful world that we're currently inhabiting and also moving to. And I, and I agree with you that part of the challenge for my oldest son and others is this dynamic of how do you actually make truth matter, right? And, and in a world where digital assets are valued so highly and they can be copied and manipulated and changed, it becomes very easy to tell the dynamic of, you know, it's fake news, right? right? And, and hopefully you're correct. And I, I agree with you that this issue of creating scarcity, creating truth, creating a document that says, you know, this is the actual fact record. I think that has to have value. If it doesn't, I think that we're in a, in, in a very dangerous place. Which itself, right, was the basis for science, right? It ushered in enlightenment and the Renaissance. And, and I feel strongly that there is a group of people that sees the virtue in empirical information that is true. Um, I mean, I know of companies right now that are trying to almost create a scientific graph of entities and objects to get to ground truth of you know, the food, the, uh, the food network of where it's coming from and what the actual content it is, so that these are kinds of things that almost get locked into the graph and they can't be tampered with. And going back to like the idea of blockchain, that has that same virtue, where there's some truth that transcends any one individual and it's very hard to change. Wikipedia is a sort of another example of that. Somebody can come in and they could lie and they could say, no, no, Mike Green didn't grow up in San Francisco, he grew up in Oklahoma, but then somebody changes it back, right? And so the network itself is almost this corrective, this immune system for false information. Well, remarkably close. My mother grew up in Oklahoma. <laughs> but um, I, I, that is actually, I think, an incredibly important link that you just made, which is the dark ages, the middle ages, the myth-based world of, you know, what you're told is true, what you believe is true, um, has no basis in the physical world, right? right? Now, I have no objection to anyone harboring any beliefs that they have in terms of spirituality or God or anything else. But there is an importance in, in the Francis Bacon-led revolution that says, no, look, this is a testable hypothesis, right? We actually have the tools that allow us to declare what is true, right? Um, and we forfeited some of that in the world where we've moved away from the physical and into the world of second life, um, where anything can happen and anything can be true and you can reboot the machine and retell it. And I think that's actually a really interesting I think it's a really interesting link to the importance well, well, of crypto. You touched on something which is interesting, which is, you know, 
you would think, one would have hypothesized 20 years ago, we're going to have an abundant internet that's going to provide always-on information at the touch of your fingertips, and you'll be able to contact experts and get truth and all this kind of stuff. And what we've seen, of course, is the opposite, right? That we've seen, not that that doesn't exist, but a spiraling of you know crazy fake information and false information and the rise of people who are famous just for being famous. And, and all the good stuff has been amplified, but the bad stuff seems to be amplified more. If you take China, which is a great example of this, people thought the internet and cryptocurrency um, and cameras that could turn on Big Brother, I mean, these are all tools that would unleash democracy and freedom and be better for humanity. Well, they were going to document corruption, right? They right. were going to protect society against it's that. the same thing that we do now, I think, with uh, police cameras, right? Which mm -hmm. I think are a virtuous thing, right? Put, put an, a camera on Big Brother, right? Who's watching the watchers? But it turns out, and I just got back from China 10 days ago, I mean, this is not anything like a state that fears technology. This is a state that loves technology. Technology is a tool to surveil and suppress like never before. And so you walk into a building and within three minutes you're identified in every corridor and facial recognition. When I landed, Lauren asked me to get a burner phone and you know, don't, within two seconds, I'm fingerprinted, face is captured, I'm paying for stuff with my face. Like I was done, I'm in the system, right? I've given myself over to the information gods. But that turns into um, a system that not only knows who you are and where you are. In the US, when we're using our phones and Snapchat and your kids are putting the little panda face on laughing and little rainbows coming out of their unicorn mouths, it's all fun and games. In China and in Russia, we know that all that goes to central databases. And they know who you are. You've been pixel sucked into the system. They know where you are. They know your phone. They know your coordinates. They know who your friends are. They know your social graph. And as you get a digital currency, which I think is inevitable with China, then you'll be able to track every financial transaction. And you already have rating systems where, based on who you are associating with and what you are saying or not saying about the government, whether you are on time for work, whether you've done benevolent good deeds, whether, I mean, the government is able to basically gamify a point system and you will be denied access to the concert ticket or the seat on the train or, the air, or uh, on the airplane or alone. And so, you know, you think about FICO score and like, you know, I mean, that itself is a flawed metric, but I mean, China, in a sense, is living in the future in that regard. And I think it's a very scary one with profound implications here in the U.S. Well, this is a little terrifying because you and I are on opposite ends of the skeptic spectrum. You're focused in venture capital and I'm focused in you know, the world of macro. I find it remarkable that people, more people don't see China in this frame. Right? I mean, I would go even a step further and point out that we know the state of image recognition, even when you're utilizing, you know, Google's super data you know, centers, et cetera, is, is incredibly crude. Right? So the idea that image recognition was really going to isolate who an individual was in a real-time basis, like this is a tool that's used for the after effect, right? Um, you know, if you're going to actually evaluate that data, you're going to use an image capture and you're going to say, this is our suspect, this is what we're doing. Well, right? I'll give you one right on that. I mean, we have a company in China, uh, not we, there is a company in China, uh, Higivision, which is basically producing all the cameras. And then you have SenseTime, which is producing the AI algorithms on top, which can determine whether you're looking at a bicycle, a car, a person, who that person is, where they've been, right? All the sort of uh, visual recognition. But take this further. I mean, Golden State Killer was identified because you had genetic link from one person whose genetic sequence was a second cousin or first cousin you know, to somebody else. That person themselves had never been sequenced. And so you get this social graph of people who are connected genetically. 
Now today, it is snake oil if anybody says that um, I can take a genetic sequence from you and recreate your face. But over time, if you can get enough correlated analysis where I'm able to visually capture your face, which is basically just a point cloud uh, of zeros and ones, and then tie that to genetics, that over time I might be able to actually say, wait a second, this gene sequence actually correlates with a narrow face or dark skin or lighter hair or eyebrows or whatever it might be. And over time, not only will you be able to identify the person using AI through machine learning and, and visual algorithms, but with a small sample of skin or hair, you'll be able to visually recreate that person. And so that is a, a, a scary near-term future. I, I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical than you are on that because I do think that there is a dynamic of environment versus genetics that plays an extraordinary role in our visual appearance, right? The sunburn you received as a young child, your debatable skater do, the, you know, um, it's an amazing skater, dude. It is an amazing skater. No, no but, but look, yeah. a- Apple, I mean, they, would you have thought five years ago that you could unlock your phone with your face? Or yes. that you could pay? You, really? Yeah, I, I wouldn't have been surprised by that. No. See, I was surprised by that. I didn't think that the facial recognition algorithms would be good enough to really distinguish me from somebody else. And, and But they're really not, actually. I mean, if, if, you, if you were to present that image, and, and, and a number of hackers have done this, right? If you were to present that image with a close approximation, right? Your doppelganger in, in, in the world. That it would still unlock. It's still gonna unlock. But right? that and itself will only improve, right? It, it, it will, right? But it also becomes a question of like, it, does it satisfice, right? And, and by and large, the risk that a doppelganger to Mike Green, that somebody has made the mistake of, you know, too much sun exposure and <laughs> debatable, uh, uh, you know, alcohol consumption at various things. We gotta get you the like, skater do. Yeah, That's we it. gotta get a skater do. Um, but, but to me, these things, they feel like magic. Yes. And, and I mean, we've talked about technology as yep. indistinguishable from magic. I mean, the most advanced kind yep. is. And um, I mean, that's the stuff that, at the moment that really inspires me. So I, I, I actually agree with that. I think the thing that concerns me is I, I, I think about that stuff. And I'm much less concerned within our community and our society. And I think that's one of the great ironies is that people are... It's very easy to be bearish on the society that you live in because you're constantly exposed to the warts. Right, you, you know, you have to deal with the fact that the cab wasn't there at the exact same moment right. that you wanted it, and you have to deal with the fact that somebody was rude on the sidewalk, et cetera. Right, um, and it's very easy to to uh, romanticize a foreign land. The grass is always greener, is the simple expression. Right, but when I look many places around the world, I'm shocked by the type of developments that you're referring to in China. Like, you know, I look at. Um, the trajectory that we've seen in China with the rise of the surveillance state and the gamification of mm-hmm. it, right? And because I draw historical parallels, I understand that it, it rhymes rather than repeats. I, I, I'm, I'm forced to address this and say, look, what is this? You've effectively recreated, and I'm violating Godwin's law, but you're recreating the Nazi youth, right? right? You're creating a reporting structure that's kind of fun, and you were in reward points, and you get to rise within the infrastructure, right? And George Soros, you know, is a perfect example of this. Somebody who throve within that environment, even though he was a, an, an unwitting participant in the devastation of his own society, right? Um, this is very transparent and very clear to me that this is the direction that this seems to be going. At, at the moment, the distinction seems to be, and again, it's a scary thing to just say at the moment, right, is that they don't seem to have an ideology that is either expansionist or truly nationalist in a, you know, chest-beating kind of way. Um, you know, that you haven't had the phenomenon of the spring 
you know, being cocked back that, you know, needs to release. I mean, you see that now with Russia. Uh, you know, there are a lot of Cold War mistakes that I think the U.S. made that have created this revanchist Russia. Um, you, I saw it, you know, post-World uh, War I with, with Germany, but I, I don't think you see that as much in China. I mean, China really ruled for, what, 18 of the past 20 centuries, and save for the past 200 years or so as the largest economy. Um, you know, I think this is just a resurgent China. Yeah, see, I, I, I take the other side of that, and that's a, this, is, this is where it becomes interesting to me, right? So if I look at... First of all, the, the the history that China ruled for 18 of the last 20 centuries, right? There is no quote unquote China, right? I mean, there's never been an empire within China that has lasted more than 100 years for all intents and purposes, right? You've had dynasty after dynasty replaced by warlords overthrowing each other. And, you know, people will point to China and say it's an ancient culture. And it's like, wait a second, give me a break. This is 1949, right? Um, this is not an ancient culture in any stretch of the imagination. Fair. But there is a clear distinction between old China and new China. And new China to me is tech driven, young, vibrant. I mean, the, the degree with which people's daily lives are inside of Ali or Tencent, inside of you know, DingChat or WeChat or WePay uh, is astounding. Now, do I think that that's gonna be totally undirected by the government? Absolutely not. I think new China is gonna be pushed, if not nudged gently to bail out old China. But that, to me, just seems ascendant and a real threat even to U.S. social media networks and technology companies. But at its core, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to hear you describe China as young, right? Because China is not young. China's average age, the median age in China is now roughly what it is in the United States. Their graduating class of high school students will be approximately 58% the size that it was 20 years ago, mm. right? Um, but it's always going to be the small skew, right? It's going to be the... 5% or less of the population that's going to be creating 110% of the... But how can you actually create... How, how can you think about that dynamic or creating innovation in a regime in which your communications are closely monitored, right? You're not allowed necessarily to speak in a heretical fashion. Well, right? I mean, you, you could say on the one hand, if the human nature evolves, you know, to sort of go around that, that people will find ways to speak in code in other ways. I mean, you know, human nature has always sort of figured out ways to route around the system. Um, but, but I think that part of it is people growing up used to it. You know, they know that they're being watched, they know what they can and can't say, and they seem to be thriving in spite of it. And I think if all of this creates convenience, I mean, it is to me the ultimate trade-off, right? All technology, convenience, privacy. I, on the one hand, have given myself over to the information gods. I have a partner who decides that, you know, they're going to put sticker over the camera and opt out of every network. And I call it the entropy of information because the amount of energy that they have to spend to fight that entropy, you know, to, of it, they're, 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 no trace of them being online is just so exhaustive. I think in China, they just say, look, we're getting convenience. We're giving up total privacy. And for convenience for them, it's, you know, being able to pay with their face, being able to do everything inside of one essential app. Um, and I just think their lives are improving. Yeah. I mean, it, it, so I, I find this fascinating, and I'm going to be forced to, re, you know, to evaluate some of my thoughts in the context of, of your optimism. Um, I look at the system and I see something very straightforward, which is a mantra that people will say you know, repeatedly, which is uh, the Chinese government has um, had a simple rule. Right? You don't speak up in protest and we're going to raise your standard of living. And by and large, that has worked well for give or take 20 plus years, almost, almost 40 years yeah. now. Um, and over that time period, China has grown in a fantastic fashion through a combination of 
um, relocating resources from the countryside into the city, raising the quality of a finite component of human capital. Their college graduate population is roughly 6% of the population now. Um, and it's you know, the data is fairly clear that it's similar to the development patterns of the Asian tigers, mm -hmm. right? Um, and now suddenly you're seeing the rise of the surveillance state, right? The surveillance state is you're saying people need to learn in code, they need, you know, they need to learn to communicate in code, they need to modify their behavior associated with it, right? By definition, it's a parasitic relationship, right? It cannot improve the underlying functioning, right? And so the question is, why would you actually overlay something like this? And, and my hypothesis is fairly straightforward, which is that they recognize that they can no longer offer the significantly improving living standards, particularly if the U.S robustly enforces our, our um, uh, intellectual property. Um, and so you're building the systems that force people to actually not protest and rise up. I, I think, I'll give you the optimistic case. The optimistic case is, you know, for the past, let's say 200 years, um, you had an agricultural China, you had an industrializing Britain and the US. You had a US that was totally unburdened by its culture, right? I mean, it came, it was pioneering spirit and pioneering state, different cultures coming together. China was burdened, in a sense, by its historic legacies and cultural norms. And so you have Mao come in in the 50s, and you know some look at it and say that this is the worst thing ever and horrible atrocities. And indeed, people and resources were shifted and given to Russia so that they can get industrial equipment. And you have, for the next 20 years until Mao dies, I forget if it's 74, 76, you know, this sort of cultural revolution and um, a shift from this agrarian economy to an industrializing one, which is just really two generations. And then you have Deng and then, you know, now, and now Xi. And when you see these term limits shift, I, I was asking a very prominent billionaire in Hong Kong, I said, you know, what does this mean for the future? Having the same concerns that you do, right? Because it's one thing to see sort of a growing China. It's another thing to see growing China knowing it's not a democracy. And his view, which maybe is naive, maybe it's optimistic, was... When GDP per capita goes from 6,000 or 8,000, I'm not sure exactly where it is today, to 15 to 20,000, when you have people who have true ownership of homes and cars and neighborhoods and land and property, and they have a real investment in the economy, which may take another generation, that you'll start to see the government step back because in a sense they can trust the people with the country. And I thought that was an interesting perspective. And maybe I was hooked into it and you know it's, it's naive. But it was something where if you have all these people that are coming from the countryside moving into cities and don't necessarily have the buy-in, you know, you could almost make it a broken windows argument. I could see the case where you need a generation for people to really feel a sense of ownership and pride in creation, neighborhoods, and all that kind of stuff. And um, there was something to that. So, so the benign would be, you know, this is just another generation and, and then it sort of, you know, starts to be, and you have seen some liberalization, right? Um, but then again, yes, at the same time that you see this suppressive surveillance state overlaying it. Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm gonna hold on to my skepticism. Um, you know, I spoke recently with a, a good friend of mine who's a, a professor in, in China. Um, and another mantra that people use all the time is, is that the Chinese government has very, very closely studied uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, right? And, and the rumors are that Xi literally has like timelines written mm. out. You know, it's the 13th, fifth year plan and all that sort of five year plan, et cetera, right? Um, under which similar dynamics played out. And so they're determined to stop it. I, my, my operating model is, is that by studying the near past and the most recent one and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989, 
they're just repeating the mistakes or the mistakes is, is in quotes, right? Repeating the pattern of the Soviet Union when they first faced those dynamics in 1936-37, which gave rise to Stalin. Hmm. Right? That was when Stalin changed the constitution, became dictator for life functionally. Um, and uh, the pattern of the Cold War was put in place. And I, I, you know, my simple interpretation of it is that we have a fake history, right? We tend to think about the world from 1946 through 1971 as the world of Bretton Woods and the dollar standard and, and everything operated on a dollar standard where that was linked to gold until Nixon broke it at the gold window. And I think that's just a terrible telling of history because roughly half the world's population would never have seen a dollar in that environment, right? So the Soviets participated in Bretton Woods but didn't actually choose to partake. They were under a ruble standard. Um, uh, the China, Chinese, likewise, were, were not under a dollar standard. But there, there's an interesting thing that came to mind as you were describing this, which was I can't name one product in the U.S. that was sought after, coveted, desired, that was Russian-made let's say 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s. I mean, I, I literally can't name one brand. Well, Smirnoff, but... Okay, vodka, yeah, sure. But uh, uh, whereas I think for the first time, going back three or four or five years, the first Chinese fully made, manufactured, distributed product was not only coveted in the U.S., but has taken like 90% of the market share. And that was DJI, the drone company. It was a oh. consumer electronic company, the best-selling drone in the country. In 2010, the FAA said there might be 10,000 drones in 10 years. 10,000 of these DJI Chinese drones are sold mm -hmm. in the U.S. every month. So that to me is the first. And the one that I see on the horizon, which is you know both scary and frankly inspiring, I would say that China lacks something that we have in the U.S. And because they lack it, they are going to be ascendant. And that is the rules and the regulatory apparatus and the ethics around biotech. We have all kinds of commissions, and we have an FDA, and we have debates, and we have public forums, and everything slows down. All of our primate research is increasingly being shifted to China. You have a growing population with Alzheimer's and CNS disorders, where research is happening there. And you have CRISPR and Cas9 and the genetic engineering techniques, which are happening there. And so while we debate it for a decade, which I'm not saying is the wrong thing to do, but the realistic observation is that they are already genetically engineering, like the Whippet dog, to have muscle hypertrophy. And you're gonna to start to see traits that are engineered and diseases that are cured there first and basically imported in. And when people say, you know, this, I think it's a 2025 made in China, I don't know if it's gonna be products, I don't know if it's gonna be consumer electronics, but I feel very strongly that the future of biotech and pharma and a lot of our disease curing drugs are gonna be imported from Chinese companies. So it's interesting that you say this um, and that you focus on that because you know, what, I'm, what I'm hearing from you is the same thing you would have said about sports research in the Soviet Union. Right, and remember Rocky IV, I think it was, right? You know, the, the fear of the Soviet Union, right, was giving way, I want to say this is 1984 approximately, right, Where, when, when Rocky IV came out with, uh, you know, uh, Dolph Lundgren. Dra Drago. The, Dra yeah, that's what, forget the character's name, right? But, you know, this was, this was the general view that because the Russians were unbound by the rules and conventions of American or polite society, right? Um, that they would be you were this, the, the Captain America and Superman themes, right, rose in response to American fears that the Nazis and others were engendering a, a um, legion of super soldiers, mm. right? Um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm just incredibly skeptical incredibly skeptical that we need to actually be concerned about those issues and that 
it's far more important to us to actually be focused on the moral and ethical dynamic um, in part so that we prevent the risk of something like a paperclip world, right? Where we've just done, it was just one mistake, right? We didn't set a constraint um, and then it goes off in a very wrong direction. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually much more hopeful about the rules of debate in polite society. I think context. we're still going to be the moral arbiter and you know, sort of the, the cop of what yeah. people ought to be doing. I just, I just think that um, some of the biggest advances and a lot of the money is going to be made in China. Well, I, that, that is certainly possible. There was a lot of money made by you know, Politburo members and the Soviet That's Union. That's true, so. too. So I want to change gears and push on a couple of things that you've um, talked about in the past and some of the things you focused on recently. One is you brought up something you said you became entranced by magic. Yes. And tell me about this. Well, well it, it's, it's dangerous as an investor because when you see something, first of all, that confirms a hypothesis that you have, that's sort of dangerous because you're like, okay, I'm looking at exhibit A of what I think. Um, so, you know, having disconfirming evidence for that would be valuable and that's where the partnership comes in. But then you meet the founder and you fall in love and then it's doubly dangerous because now I'm just being entirely driven by emotion, right? I'm like, okay, this is the future. It's singular and I need to own it. And in this particular case, I'll share the thesis and I'll share the company that we ended up investing in and what they're producing because I think it will have a profound impact on the way that we interact with our technology. I call this the half-life of technology intimacy. And so I'm going to give you different years, basically going back in time, and you'll see how the half-life evolves. And these are the sort of undeniable, uh, the undeniable arrows of progress that I love finding. So whether that was in energy density or in computation, you know, it's sort of like finding the unnamed law where you see that this is evolving in a certain way. So in this case, 50 years ago, you had an ENIAC computer. It took up, you know, a room this size. And the way that you would interact with it was by standing up, walking over to it, touching some buttons, maybe pulling some plugs. 25 years ago, the first half-life, the dominant form of computing is a personal computer. You have it as a desktop computer on your desk. You are tickling it with your fingers and you have a mouse under your palm that you're rubbing. And that's the way that's physically interacting with your body. Next half-life, 12 and a half years. Now the dominant form is a laptop. So the same modality, you're tickling with your fingers, you're touching a trackpad, and now it's physically on your lap. Six and a half years, you know, now you've got the iPhone. It's the first thing you touch in the morning, it's the last thing you touch at night. You're swiping it, you're tapping it, you're caressing it. And uh, the only thing that really separates it from your body, particularly for men, is a thin film of fabric in your pant if it's in your pocket all day. Three and a half years ago, you've got an iWatch or you know, maybe a Samsung Gear, or a, but, but now it's in constant contact with your skin. $25 Chinese knockoff of a Fitbit. Going back to China, there we go. So, uh, and then a year and a half ago, you've got AirPods that are in your ear, and sometimes people forget that they're in there. And you can see the undeniable technological trend is that technology is becoming more intimate with you, it's becoming closer to the body, and it's conforming more to the way that you interact, more humane, even though we bemoan how technologically obsessed we are. You see it with Siri and Alexa and voice. We're just using our natural voice to communicate with computers. And what I'm doing right now, I'm gesturing, I'm using my hands. This to me is the future of how we're gonna interact with our devices. You had to learn like on Mavis Beak and typing, you know, my kids are learning this now, how to type on a QWERTY keyboard, right? It's self-organized to slow people down from an archaic typewriter. Um, you have to learn how to swipe in two dimensions. So with this thesis in mind, I get introduced through a PhD professor that we backed in a company that company was doing something to reverse engineer the gut-brain axis biotech. And we ended up getting some big quant funds that came in to join that company. It's called Calliope. That scientist tells me about a guy that he was advising. Now, this is a guy 
He's got 18 siblings, which itself, I know he's going to be interesting. Ten of them are biological, eight adopted, uh, you know, into the family. He ended up being Bill Gates' right-hand guy for, through the 90s. Uh, he was a prodigy in science and math and, you know, 18 years old, doesn't go to college, gets handpicked, joins Microsoft, single-handedly ends up coding Internet Explorer. And is Bill's right-hand guy also through the DOJ Monopoly trials. Makes a bunch of money, retires, does another company, takes that public called OpenWave, basically invents the mobile browser, makes more money and retires for the second time and then decides to actually go back and get a college degree. Goes to Columbia, studies classics, and then gets a PhD, as anybody might, in neuroscience. So for the past decade, he's basically studied a technology called myoelectric signals, which is being able to detect your actual neurons that are firing from the arm. So with a simple band, and today it's kludgy and has wires on it, but in the future it'll be as uh, bespoke and, and invisible as a wristband watch, uh, a watch wristband. He can detect your intention as well as the signal. So when I decide to type, my brain is saying, I want to type the word Mike Green. And my fingers go, and I physically do that, onto a device as an output, and the device then inputs it into a computer. But I don't need to do that anymore, because if I just think the thought, I'm firing the signals, and the machine can pick that up without me actually having to type on the keyboard. And so the first demo that I did with this guy and the company that he founded called Control Labs was sitting and typing on a keyboard, and then he pushes the keyboard away, and you're sitting there typing in free space, and it's just able to do it. And then you can restrain your hands, and you can think about typing, and the words are popping up on the screen, which is insane. So this to me was a preview of the idea of a universal controller. That if you're wearing one of these things on your, on your wrists, you walk into a room and you want to put on the lights, you might just tap your fingers together. You want to put on Spotify, you might have a different motion. And your motion can be training the computer to do something different than mine. I might want to just tap my finger, you might want to snap. And then I want to switch songs, I just make a gesture in free space like this. I want to make it volume louder or lower. There's a lot of things that voice is amazing for. But try manipulating or resizing a photo or editing a video. You know, we use our hands to do these things in three-dimensional space. And I think we are going to be controlling our homes, Internet of Things, our vehicles, robots, all by gesture. And today, you require a camera to detect gesture. And in the near future, it's going to be detecting directly from your neurons. And this idea of human-computer interaction is going to be ushered in way faster than anybody thought. And it's not going to require ridiculous you know, Elon Musk implants into the brain. Um, well, you brought up ridiculous and Elon Musk, which yeah, gives yeah. me an entire tangent. But, but I repeat myself. But you were, yes, exactly. Um, so I guess the question that I would have on this, right? And so, so first of all, it's extraordinarily compelling when you think about the idea that the computer is capturing your intention, right? Do you still need to be trained? I mean, if you think about it in the context of if my intention is to type my green, don't I actually have to still take Mavis Beacon typing to be able to have the intention of typing Mike Green? So this was the crazy thing. The answer is no. You okay. basically are going to use this for like 10 seconds. And it's going to detect based on you changing because you're frustrated. It didn't work the first time. And it will quickly learn what your intention is. So that's extraordinary. I mean, you're, you, you really are describing a form of magic where um, my frustration becomes a feedback mechanism. Now, I mean, where this becomes simultaneously frightening and incredibly exciting is to imagine the potential if you put this on the hands of a small child. Small child, paraplegics, people who have lost their feeling but have phantom limb syndrome where they're actually thinking that they're moving but they don't actually have the digit. The founder has even imagined, you know, we evolved 10 fingers. But what if you had robotic arms where you could mentally control not just a avatar of your hand, 
not just in virtual space, but a robot elsewhere. And I'll give you an example of that. But that had six fingers or seven fingers and that you could actually think about moving a seventh finger. And so that sounds like total sci-fi craziness, but it's real. If I'm away and I want to go into my home, I can go log into my Nest uh, cameras. I can, um, uh, sorry, my, my drop cam uh, or Nest cams. I can change the thermostats and the temperature. But if I wanted to see if I left something in a drawer, there's no way for me to do that. But if I had a small multi-axis gripper on a simple Roomba that could go and navigate, and then remotely I put this on and I'm able to manipulate this thing in three-dimensional space, I mean, it's going to open up all kinds of possibilities. And I think that once you put this out there and people start inventing stuff around it, it will completely change the way that we interact with computers, going back way beyond what the mouse or the keyboard or buttons or clicks or, or levers or uh, you know anything that we use today. It's just literally going to be gestures. Well, assuming the access, I mean, assuming it can be manufactured cheaply, assuming that it can that it can be replicated, and technology obviously favors that conclusion. Um, I agree with you that that actually, I mean, it does it does cross over, right? But it's you used an extraordinary um, analogy, right? Where you said, imagine having a sixth finger or a seventh finger, yes. right? Um, and you also used the, the science fiction analogy. Both you and I are science fiction fans, in part because it's the imagine, you know, it's, it's an expression of, of somebody far more creative's imagination of what could potentially happen. And that right? gap always shrinking, right? That gap is shrinking, and sometimes it's shrinking because technology hasn't pushed it far enough ahead, right? I mean, the golden age of technology arose, or of science fiction arose, you know, 1940s, 1950s, I would imagine, or I, I would hypothesize, because technology suddenly opened people's eyes to, my gosh, so much can change, and so many things that we take for granted um, may change. Um, but that type of interface um, really does actually start to change it, right? Because no longer do you need to fill in with a number two pencil on a standardized test. No longer do you need to learn how to type, right? And and I, I, fun I focus on the kids because they will be the broad scale. I mean, Paraplegics, while certainly important and somebody who's lost in an amputee, well, is, is certainly an incredibly important audience. But it's by definition a very small fraction of our society. I mean, look, increasingly smaller. You know, on the sci-fi front, Minority yeah. Report, sort of imagine, you know, Tom Cruise swiping through, right? But he's wearing gloves. Yeah. They didn't even imagine a future where you don't need to wear gloves because it can detect your neural response. And kids, you know, you try to put a controller for an Xbox, you know, in front of a, an, an adult and say, okay, you know, go fly a drone. Uh, you know, or go perform robotic surgery. You know, the kids can do that, but that was the thing that parents were always bemoaning. But uh, I, I think you know, uh, the interfaces of the future are going to look like this, and it will be. And they're people. far more integrated. Totally. But I mean, you're you're you are correctly expressing an correctly. I don't have the capacity to to articulate whether it's correct. It certainly feels valid to me that we should be highly skeptical of the idea that there'll be a direct neural implant, for example, because the, the neurosystem is incredibly robust. And I, I just think it's it's creepy, the idea that you're going to perform surgery yeah. and implant something into you in your brain. I mean, we, of course, have cochlear implants and we have knee implants and all kinds of things, and people feel more comfortable with that, but it's not necessary. Today, if you have an iPhone and you hear a song, you hold up your phone and you pick up a signature of that song through Shazam or some other app like that, this is just producing a signal. And the key is to be able to detect that signal, be able to know what is noise and what signal, and then be able to translate that into some output. And you can do that today. Well, and, and I use this example. There was a, a, I've probably uh, said this one to you before, right? Because it just resonates so strongly with me. There was a study done a couple of years ago on college students, and the conclusion was the internet uh, gives false confidence to students in terms of their body of knowledge, right? And so they created a control group, 
in a, a standard group that could, you know, the, the control group did not have access to the internet. The, the uh, experimental group did have access to the internet and they were asked, you know, what's your confidence in your ability to answer a series of questions, right? Kids who had access to the internet, of course, were more confident, right? Because they could Google all the, the stuff, right? And then after they do the, the experiment again, they repeat the experiment, but now they've pulled internet access from everyone, right? And the group that had access to the internet expresses too high of a confidence, yes. right? Um, and so the conclusion was that the internet gives false confidence. My takeaway from that was radically different, which is what idiot would take away access to the internet, right? I mean, these kids are now thinking about this as an extension of themselves, yes. right? They don't, it'd be like saying, you know, can you do the test with your eyes closed? Why, right? Why would you do this? Um, and so I do think that this is an incredibly important um, type of step forward, right? Where you're, you're changing these interfaces to make them more natural and to create the technology to be more integrated into who we are as human beings, right? And that, that will change as we go through this process. It's, you know, we sort of call it the technology of humanity and the humanity of technology. But I think, you know, as you have this sort of man-machine debates, both in labor and capital markets, but also just in, in the way that we're interacting with things, it's going to become much more humanistic. Our technology is going to be conforming to us instead of us conforming hunched over with carpal tunnel to these QWERTY keyboards. So this idea, of course, morphs into another one of your well-known expressions, right? Which is the next big thing uh, is a function of whatever rots your brain. Yes. Right? You, know, you say to your, your kids, TV will rot your brain, right? Well, TV was the big thing, right? And computers and internet access will rot Those your brain. chat rooms. Chat you know, rooms yeah. are the worst. Um, what's going to rot their brains? What's rotting their brains now? Well, you know, when I look at, and it's my natural response, right, as a parent. What are my kids addicted to right now? Snapchat. Well, it's screens. Yeah. Um, but what's crazy, and this is where I actually paused my wife and I said, okay, you know, my eight-year-old is addicted to Fortnite, which is a multiplayer, you know, online game, yeah. and um, uh, Roblox. Yeah. And I knew, I have a friend who's a late-stage investor in this company, Roblox. We're not invested in it. And I said, this thing is going to be a runaway hit because all the kids are obsessed with it and none of the parents know what it is. They haven't even heard of it. And they have their own language inside of the chat rooms and the way that they talk. And so there's this aspect, which I used to call like the blinking 12 o'clock, you know, there's like the VCR effect. It was like the thing my mom never knew how to program. She never knew how to, and I was always the one that was programming the clock every time it got unplugged. Then I could operate it seamlessly and it was no problem, right? First of all, my kids have no idea what a VCR is today, right? I don't even think we have like the ability if we had a cassette tape to play it anywhere or a DVD in our home, et cetera. But I think two things there, I, I feel like they're digital natives that are gonna be totally fluent which are today screens, just abundant and everywhere. The ability to operate touchscreens in all varieties. You know, you see this, this example of even a two-year-old baby. There's a great YouTube video of the baby when they're looking through a physical magazine and trying to tap onto the pictures and resize them with their hands. And they're frustrated that this analog pulp thing doesn't behave with the intuitive physics that they have from the digital world. So I think screens are a big one. Now, the big question to ask always is what happens when everybody has one and when people are using this because that's the thing that gets invented. Video games and the controllers, the Xbox controllers and the PS4 controllers are begetting today's drone pilots. And whether those are fanciful things for like drone racing league or serious military operations, those are people who developed eye-hand coordination playing video games. Same thing for surgical robots. Today, a surgical ro a robotic surgeon is training the robot on something that looks like an Xbox controller. And then haptically, the machine is learning and able to train other surgeons. So something like video games, where parents were saying it will rot your brain, is beginning drone pilots and, and, ro and robotic surgeons. And I think screens and all the multiplayer stuff that is happening 
you will see what today looks like crude and doesn't make much sense, the second life or virtual reality and multi, uh, uh, massive multi-online uh, communities. I think it's going to take off. And I think that they're going to be much more um, uh, lifelike, much more uh, uh, simulacrums of reality. And I think that our kids are going to be totally native inside of these. I don't think it's going to be VR headsets. Um, I think the kids are too distracted to be inside of something for 15 minutes, uh, just focused on one thing. But I think it's that fast twitch, being able to switch between different things in a, in a rapid environment. I don't think that that is a vice. I think it is a virtue. Every book today is written is saying, you know, kids' attention spans are too short. They don't write. They don't read. I don't think any of that is true. I think they read, they write, they consume. The language and the syntax changes. But they're communicating more than ever, and I think they're consuming more information than ever. And if you actually sit and talk to young millennials, I actually find that their values and their intellect is like way better than the stereotypes you know, prescribed to them. Yeah, I, I'm very much of that opinion as well. I mean, I see with my own kids a far more heightened sense of community, a far more heightened sense of uh, humanity in a broader sense than, than uh, was certainly present in our generation. Um, and I, I agree with you that you've got to be very careful in, in looking at the screen time and looking at the, the short attention spans with quick reaction function that kids are developing. Um, with too much skepticism. There is this issue of thinking fast and slow that, that we need to be able to develop both. Um, but I, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that. I, I just think some kids are gonna be advantaged because of it. And, mm -hmm. um, and the thing that we can't imagine five or 10 years hence, you're gonna look back and say, oh my God, those are, those are the geniuses and those are the future Bill Gateses and they were the kids that grew up on screen time and multiplayer online games. And Well, perversely, I, I mean, I do think that it is important to distinguish, right? Because there is always a segment of the population that just becomes addicted, right? There's the kid who was in the arcade playing video games, dumping quarters in, that ultimately that was the end objective, yes. right? And then there was the kid who was in the video game arcade Playing, dumping quarters in saying, wow, this is really cool technology. Let me think about how this could be done or how this could be used, right? And I do think that, that it's inevitable that society caters uh, to the desires of, of the, the kid at the center, right? Who's, who's saying, you know, wow, I, I love this. Let me dump more quarters in. Um, but it enables the kid who's thoughtful about it to move to the we, next We've level. spoken about this before, but the moral imperative to invent you know, imagine where Person X existed and technology Y didn't. Yep. Imagine a world where Mozart exists, but the harpsichord didn't. Where Hendrix exists, but the electric guitar didn't. Where Bill Gates exists, but the PC doesn't. And it's going to be the same thing. There's going to be some name that we don't know today. Mm -hmm. And imagine if that person existed and the touchscreen or the multiplayer online game didn't exist, and it's unlocking the future genius. And you are right. It is not about the masses, some of whom are prone to addiction and bad behavior. It's about finding those singular people who go on to change the world. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap up because we have used up all of our time. It can't be 18 months again before we get you. No, definitely not. Always, always awesome to spend time with you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.